So we are in the book of Acts. Last week we talked about signs of the kingdom. We talked about the things that uh, would follow when the kingdom of God is coming in our midst. And we talked about the kingdom of God is within us. Uh, it's when we say that to God uh, with our life, you have the authority to rule my life. And we say, you are sovereign in my life. I am going to put myself underneath your authority and follow you. And the kingdom of God comes. And accompanying that kingdom coming, uh, as we see in the book of Acts, thousands of Christians uh, are, are coming together who have made this, this demarcation in their life. And we see healings, physical healings. We see people coming to Christ. We see people being baptized. Some of the things we've seen today. Uh, we see uh, people that are completely uh, disabled, healed uh, by the power of God. And all these signs and wonders are all things that point to the truth, that Jesus is the victorious king. And when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he established a kingdom on earth where all of the sin and brokenness that's around us begins to come untrue uh, in us. In other words, uh, where, where there is darkness, there is light. Where there is sickness, there is healing. Where there is uh, discord, there is unity. The kingdom of God begins to just creep in. And it says in the Bible, it's like a mustard seed. The smallest of the seeds in, the, in a human heart and in a group of people we call the body of Christ that grows into a tree that's so big that the birds of the air can find their home in it. Uh, that's what the kingdom of God is like. We are growing in the kingdom. We're walking in the kingdom. We're asking God for more in this church and for Saratoga Springs. And we believe that, uh, that one day Christ himself, he is our coming king. He will come. And he will establish his kingdom in its fullness. So now, now we are experiencing it in part. Someday we will experience it in fullness when Jesus comes back. And it says in the scriptures, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more crying, suffering, or pain. For the old order will pass away. The kingdom of God. That's all exciting stuff. And we've been praying this week, and we've been praying in general that, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as it is in God's realm where everything is as it should be, may it be so here uh, in our fellowship. So we are praying, we're seeking the Lord. Today we're in Acts 6, 1 to 7. It's our next passage. And I'm going to read through this passage. It's a short passage, and then I'm going to uh, bring you through it in a little more detail later on. Acts 6, 1 to 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, the twelve disciples, gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So there, there's, a, there's a situation. The situation is addressed. And then Luke reports in, in verse 7, 
The result of that was the word of God spread further. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And you, that little part of the end is kind of a unique piece. Priests. We're not talking about the high priest or the Sadducees, the ruling class of priests, but the average everyday, you know, local synagogue priest guy. These priests were coming to faith. And this is one of the, I think this may be the first time that's mentioned in the book of Acts. So that's uh, a problem in the church, a solution, and then fruit from that. So the kingdom advanced. As I was studying uh, and thinking about the message this week and praying, I, I, I was looking at various scriptures. I was talking with Pastor Corey, and we were discussing what God was doing in this passage and in this message. We were talking about the service, the kind of things that we do on a regular basis. And I began a little Bible study looking at fear in the New Testament. Okay? And the conclusion that I came to about fear, at least from the passages I looked at this week, is that the opposite of fear is the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's really quite remarkable. But every time fear is talked about in the New Testament, uh, or or the times I've looked at here, I'm not going to claim exhaustive Bible knowledge here, but many times when fear is mentioned, the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the next breath, and that's kind of what resolves the fear problem. Humans have a big fear problem. Most of our issues spring from fear. And even some of the bigger societal issues that we see today uh, spring from, when you get right down to it, fear. And many ugly things come out of fear. So fear is a, is a big deal. It's something that needs to be addressed. It's multifaceted. And it turns out that the anecdote to fear is the Holy Spirit. We read in Acts 4, 23 to 31. Do you remember when the disciples were being persecuted and they got together and they prayed? They prayed for boldness. And they prayed, uh, uh, not, you know, not for protection, not that God would keep them from being persecuted. They just said, give us boldness so that we can keep on spreading your word in the midst of this persecution. It's this amazing thing. Uh, they were so enamored with the signs of the kingdom that were happening uh, and the way that people were coming to Jesus, like thousands of people. They said, we don't really care about our safety at this point. This movement is awesome. We're not concerned about that. The bigger, the bigger thing that's happening is people are coming to Christ, so give us boldness to keep doing this. They were so pumped by it. And as they prayed for gold, boldness, it says in the end that God answered their prayer in the form of the place shook, just like in Pentecost when the Spirit fell, and the Spirit fell on all of them again. And they were, uh, they were renewed in their boldness. And that fear, and you know, whatever... Whatever was going on, uh, as far as the opposition, they were bold. They were ready to go. It says in Romans 5, 5, and I'm going to read just verse 5, the second half of it. It says, God has, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And I connect that to 1 John 4, 13, to 18, or 13 and 18. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us of his spirit. And then verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. There is no fear for the person who is filled with the Spirit because God is love and perfect love drives out fear and God is perfect love and God indwells us through his Holy Spirit. So by connection, you see, when we're full of the Holy Spirit, we're full of the love of God that's being poured out. It doesn't, doesn't say 
It's kind of like an action, uh, a current verb. It's being poured out into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, his love. And that love, that perfect love, casts out fear. So really, whenever people pray uh, for, for, for to be alleviated from fear, it seems that the Holy Spirit shows up and fills people. 2 Timothy 1.7. This one is really uh, a kicker. It says, For the Spirit of God, the Spirit that God gave us, does not make us timid, that's the NIV translation. You might remember it, a slave again to fear. Remember this verse? That gives us power, love, and self-discipline. This, the loving spirit of God that indwells believers and fills believers continually as we seek after God uh, obliterates fear. It really does. Perf- his perfect love casts out our fear, and we don't have to, to worry because the spirit of God has filled us. And so, really for me, when I think about this concept... Uh, of fear. The opposite of fear, ultimately, is being filled with the love of God by the Holy Spirit. It obliterates fear. So if you're struggling with fear, I'd pray about that. I'd pray that God would fill you with his spirit, that his perfect love would cast out fear. And as we look today at this passage, um, we're going to kind of talk about this concept again. Sometimes uh, the Bible lacks relevance until you can understand the very different times that the people lived in. So we look at... uh, the situation that the scriptures arose from, and it helps us to understand what happened in the scriptures, and we're going to be doing that today. But the world of the Bible is uh, sometimes much different from our world, and so it's hard to uh, make that translation. So I'm going to try to help you with that today. In a new segment I'm calling Primitive Bible Times with Pastor Nathan. This is a, a painting from 100 AD. So this is well uh, into the age of the church. Primitive Bible Times with Nathan. Now I'm going to tell you some things that are going to blow your mind about the people of the Bible uh, that are hard for us to relate to because they're just from primitive times, back when people just didn't have all the progress and understanding that we have. So, number one. Way back in the primitive Bible times, there were racial tensions. Back before all this progress. Sometimes minority groups felt oppressed because the majority groups in society did not seem to understand or take care of their interests. And so, there were some protests that happened. This is really hard to understand, I know. Um, this stuff doesn't happen anymore. But there were was, there was some, some issues with racial tension. Large groups, small groups, and even without trying to be unjust, sometimes people were overlooked, okay? So that's the first thing you need to hold that in your mind. I know it's hard to remember. Number two, in those primitive times, there were actually, and this is going to shock you, prejudices between groups of people who spoke one language and groups who spoke another, between people who were from one region or people who were from another, between people who were from one race or of another. Crazy stuff. This is just the way it was back in primitive Bible times. Number three, In the primitive Bible times, uh, sometimes poorer people look down on rich people. Poor people look down on rich people. And sometimes rich people look down on poor people. And they judged each other uh, based on their economic place in society. This primitive Bible time concept, okay? Um, And some people groups were actually scorned as being hillbillies. Like those people, you know, those crazy toothless hillbillies over from West Virginia... I just I have a friend here from West Virginia, so. <laughs> when I found out he was visiting, I thought I'd throw that in there. 
West Virginia. Can you, does anyone ever not think of John Denver when they think of West Virginia? Mountain Mama. Take me home. All right. So, in primitive Bible times, these are three things that were happening. Now, you know I'm being facetious. I'm trying to illustrate something very simple here. People, people are different from God, and people do what people do. They really do. For generations and generations, from the beginning of time, people do what people do. People are fearful. People do bad things to one another. And sometimes they don't even do those bad things on purpose. It's just they don't notice that they're hurting another, another group of people. And sometimes even Christian people behave like the people around them who don't know who God is at all. So people are people. People behave badly sometimes. From the Bible times to the modern times, these things are present. But the good news is, God is God, and he is not like people in these ways. God works with all people, all people, all the time, but not like a, you know, a salesman trying to give someone who's almost broke credit that they can't afford. Uh, he works with people by gently bringing them along, like a shepherd, leading them to springs of living water. Uh, guiding them into truth and giving them his very Holy Spirit that they might not walk in fear, but in love. That's how God works. People are people. They've always been people. They'll always behave badly. It doesn't matter which end of the spectrum you look at, if you're a political person, if you're whatever it is, people are people. That element is the same. But God is God. God is patient. God works with people to draw them along into a journey of growth. And God has a vision that is greater than people, uh, than people's vision. God has a vision that is cumulative, both for individual lives, as I said earlier, and for the world. And God's vision is to sum up everything in his son, Jesus, and to to break down uh, incredible walls in so doing. God's vision can be summarized in the Great Commission. Matthew 28 Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you, always, to the very end of the age. God has this tremendous vision. And as you see in the the highlighted part, it's a vision for all nations. This is something Jesus told his disciples. It's for all nations, every tribe and tongue. And actually, when we see... The fulfillment of God's kingdom in heaven, in Revelation, we see that it says the prophet John saw representatives from every tribe and tongue around the throne of the Lamb, praising God in their languages. Uh, And so there's this beautiful diversity that God brings together around his throne through the power of the Holy Spirit, and uh, that's the vision, that all nations would come to him. So that's God's vision. And, that, and in today's passage, what we're really seeing is uh, a really great example of people remembering what God's vision is and doing things in a way that is so spirit-filled, so beautiful, that I, c- I can hardly believe it when I think about it. It's such a beautiful vision and, uh, and something that I've really only seen starkly one, other t- one time in my life of God unifying in a very divisive situation. So this, this is people catching God's vision. But in order to understand what's happening in this passage in Acts 6, 
1 to, eight, 1 to 7, we really need to look at the people involved. You see, it talks about uh, the Hellenistic Jews in verse 1. It talks about Hebraic Jews. It talks about widows. Who were they? Where did they come from? Uh, it talks about the 12 disciples. Who were they? Uh, it talks about priests. It talks about these guys named Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Um, who are these people? Who are these priests? Understanding that is going to be what unlocks uh, what this passage is all about. So first I want to talk about what is a Hebraic Jew. A Hebraic Jew is someone who spoke Aramaic. Uh, they, read the, they read the Bible in Hebrew. They worshipped in, the in the temple, the main, the main stage, okay? So these are like, the, the, in their day they would have been looked on like very privileged people because they had the temple and all these different things. Uh, some of them were Levites who worked in the temple. Uh, they're from Jerusalem. They were, they were considered important, refined. And it, it's possible that in, in the culture that day, they would have been considered like the upper echelon because this is what people do. As far as ranking people, they're kind of at the top of the, uh, of the, of the chain here. And, it sh- and I, I think it should be noted that at the time of Pentecost, this is a progressive book, so we're going to see lots of things move and change. At the time of Pentecost, uh, most of the converts were Galilean Jews, and then after Pentecost, there were Hebraic and Galilean Jews together. But it was still just a Jewish movement. Even though God's vision was for all nations, and everyone kind of knew that in the back of their mind, it hadn't happened yet, okay? Jewish people, except for perhaps a couple exceptions. So this is a progressive move of God in history. And so we have these Hebraic Jews who spoke Aramaic. And believe it or not, that category can be broken into subcategories because people do that. People break people into categories and subcategories all the time. Uh, the, the first subcategory is the Galilean Jews who were, th- who were the ones that were thought of as being hillbillies by everyone else. And interestingly, a lot of the amazing miracles and things that Jesus did was in, uh, in Galilee. Je- Jesus was a Galilean uh, guy. Uh, he did the majority of his ministry miracles, as far as I can tell. And it turns out that God just loves hillbillies. Amen? Chaz? You know, I mean, they were... <laughs> you're proud of it. I know you're proud of it. You talk about it. They were just ripping up galley on four-wheelers and ice fishing. Like where I grew up in Broad Alban. You ice fish, you snowmobile, you shoot things. God loves those people. Okay? They're the Galilean Jews, and they are, uh, uh, yeah, everyone kind of thought of them as being more the hillbilly element. And then the Judean Jews are the sophisticated ones that speak eloquently. Uh, they wear, you know, the nice vests or the sweaters. Um, and the really, the really telling thing that you just don't pick up unless you think about these things, in Acts 2-7, the Judean Jews make this offhand comment at Pentecost. So the Spirit falls on everybody, miracles are happening, and then something really human happens. The Judean Jews say, look, are not all those people who speak in tongues Galileans? <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> the hillbillies have come to Jesus. <laughs> Jesus loves hillbillies. That's it. Say it loud, say it proud. It's like Larry the Cable Guy got anointed to be the messenger of the gospel, you know? Crazy stuff. 
So the Judean Jews, yeah, they, they were kind of incredulous at that the Galileans had, had received the Spirit, at least it appears to be. And then later in Acts 10, we're going to get to this later in the, in the series, they were, they were again shocked at uh, how God was including all these different people. And actually, it's, really, it's, really very, it's a very human thing that people are shocked. There's nothing wrong with that. They just were like, wow, I guess God is doing something new. I'm cool with that. Like, I think the Spirit is beautiful in this, actually. And even in this whole passage, I think it's a great example to us of how to uh, navigate some of these complicated situations we might find ourselves in. People were kind of like, okay. And then later on, we see the gospel going to the Samaritans, which are, were considered the half-breed people, like they were looked down on, and then the, the Gentiles who were non-Jewish. And that was, it was a big, it was a big uh, people were just kind of in awe, in awe of this. Look, God's doing this now. God's doing that now. And, but, but it was an adjustment. Make no mistake about it. People had to recalibrate, and that's kind of what this passage is about. So those are the Hebraic Jews, Galileans, and Judeans. Uh, then we have... So there's lots of Judean and Galilean converts by the time Acts 6 rolls around. And interestingly, the majority of believers in Jerusalem was probably Judean, because they were in Jerusalem. And uh, they would have been the refined folks, the temple folks. The next group that we talk about is the Hellenistic Jews, which just doesn't sound like a very nice name to give someone, like Hellenist. Like my son Elias, his name is a Hellenized version of Elijah. So when he misbehaves, I'm like, he's Hellenized, you know. Hellenized. Um, but all it means is it's Jewish people who are like the Greeks, which is the, was the dominant culture, because, uh, you know, obviously Jerusalem was under the thumb of Rome. So uh, they were like the Greeks. And there was a dispersion and persecution and all kinds of stuff that happened in, in history that you can read about in the Old Testament. And, peop- and, and the Jewish people got spread all over the place, all over the place. And so of the Hellenists, who were these like the Greeks folks, uh, they were subcategorized too. There were Parthian Hellenists, Egyptian Hellenists, Mesopotamian Hellenists, Arab Hellenists, and they and basically the, all these Hellenists from different places. When they came back to Jerusalem, uh, they they would do what many churches do today. If you go to a Greek Orthodox church, it's all folks that speak the same language, kind of thing, or 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 a Chinese church, or you know an English church, or English speaking church people would just kind of congregate together. So even the Hellenists were very divided. They'd kind of branch off. So you think about uh, uh, immigrants, sometimes when they come to the United States, they might form like, oh, there's Chinatown. All these Chinese folks are living. And I was, I was in Flushing recently, and you just see like, you, you could almost, you're like, wow, the culture is here. It's, the food is like amazing. And it's like, you're there. Where I grew up in Amsterdam, you go down, down the hill in Amsterdam, and then you're like, am I in Puerto Rico? There's, Puerto Rico, there's like Spanish signs. It's super cool, actually. But, uh, but groups will, will kind of congregate together based on language and culture. So the Hellenists did this, and they were considered li- like the Greeks. So they kind of like, in a way, people looked at them and said, you know, they sort of have succumbed to the Greek culture, and you know, they were, they were looked at that way. But interestingly, the Hellenists, though they weren't as cool religiously, economically, they were more wealthy. They were for, and, and all of the people that were in Jerusalem who were Hellenists uh, were, were people that were wealthy enough to be in Jerusalem for retirement. So it, I read in a book, it was like, it was like Florida and <laughs> Jerusalem for the Hellenistic Jews. They were wealthy enough to go there and like retire. And when they were selling all that property to take care of everyone's needs, those were Hellenists selling their properties, not Judeans. So they were more wealthy, yet they were only half 
you know, in, in people's minds, you know, they were like the Greeks. So this is all very interesting data to have as we're looking at this, this passage, because knowing these things about the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews and the subcategories, all this very human stuff that's happening, it just makes what God does and what people follow the Spirit in doing that, that much more beautiful. And, you know, I would argue the unity that's there, it's God, you know. People act like people, right? But we look at this story and we say, that's God. That's the Holy Spirit filling people, taking away their fear, filling them with love, giving them wisdom. And it's just a cool example. So let's look back at this, uh, this passage, and we're going to read through it and kind of make comments as we go. But I think this will be a little bit more uh, interesting as we look at this in light of what we've spoken about. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so the movement's going well, people are, it's kind of like it's saying they're multiplying in a sense. The Hellenistic Jews, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So all the disciples that God put in place to lead the church are Hebrew, Galilean guys. Uh, So they're in charge, and the Hellenistic Jews are complaining because their widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food. And if you think about it, in that culture, kids' families took care of their parents. So a lot of these Hellenistic people were displaced from their home country and their families, and they were in Jerusalem, and they didn't have people to take care of them. So there's probably a lot more Hellenistic widows who needed help, actually. Uh, That's something interesting to keep in mind. So the the Hellenistic Jews among them were complaining, and that's grumbling, like when the the Israelites were in the desert with with, uh, Moses, same kind of word. They were grumbling, like, oh, I hate this. It's so hot. I want food. I'm thirsty. You know, it was not good. So a human thing is happening. A person thing is happening. But, you know, not a ridiculous reason why that's happening. Uh, their actual widows were being overlooked as food was being distributed. So the 12 Hebrew dudes that Jesus put in charge of the church gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God nor to wait on tables. So in other words, uh, we can't handle all the administration. We're like way busy preaching, expanding the gospel and all this. So brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So this is, that's their, their decentralized way of leading. They, and non-authoritarian, they said, look, from all this group, Hellenists and Hebraic Jews, choose seven people who are spirit-filled people, who are wise people that have good character, and put them in charge. So they're seeding power. You know, this is a really interesting move. But I think that when people aren't fearful, because they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they're not trying to hold on to power so tightly, okay? So this proposal, because it was... It just is a great proposal, uh, especially to the Hellenists who had been complaining. They're they're like, they heard me. They heard my complaint. They took me seriously. They value me as a brother and sister in Christ, as it says in there. And it pleased the whole group. And so the group, now the disciples, chose Stephen, who who is the star of next week's sermon. He's an amazing, amazing man. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Phyllis, Phyllis, (laughs) Philip. Or Phyllis, depending on, <laughs> depending on what Bible translation you read. The Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Pumbaa. No, 
just a moment, Parmenas and Nicholas of Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Those are the folks that got chosen by the group. And all of those folks are Greek folks, Hellenists. So the disciples said, choose seven good people to make sure that this injustice doesn't happen anymore. And intelligently, they chose seven people who understood the plight of the widows because they themselves were Hellenists. This is just an awesome move. And, uh, and then they, they were presented to the apostles and they prayed for them and laid their hands on them. Uh, so this whole group w- was Hellenists. Uh, they were chosen based on their character. And I think it's important, and I really agree with a commentator that wrote, you know, these guys, based on what ended up happening with them, they didn't just wait on tables. They didn't just oversee the distribution of food. But what we see is, uh, next week we'll see that Stephen, the man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, uh, um, he, he had the supernatural kind of faith. He was doing incredible miracles. So he, he might have had a gift of, a miraculous gift to, to do miracles. Uh, he was speaking very boldly, very loudly, very proudly, as a good uh, Hellenist, uh, about the gospel. And he was a powerful, powerful guy. So he wasn't just handing out food. This guy was doing, like, apostolic stuff. He wasn't one of the 12, but he was, in a very powerful way, coming alongside them in this ethnic group, the Hellenists. Uh, Philip, a Greek-speaking guy, was later known as uh, Philip the Evangelist, and he uh, spread the gospel to the what people call the half-breed Samaritans, okay, in Acts 8, which we'll get to. So this guy, Philip, he was like an amazing evangelist. Uh, Prochorus became a bishop, apparently, according to church history. And Nicholas was a guy that wasn't even born an ethnic Jew. So really, if you think about trying not to overlook people, they included this guy, Nicholas, who had an excellent uh, character, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with wisdom. Uh, And this is a guy that's going to notice when when people are maybe underserved or, or, or accidentally overlooked uh, who were not even Jews at all to begin with. He was someone who came, came, became a Jew. And the other, the other folks on that list we don't really hear from again. Uh, but just seeing the caliber of these people, the ones that we do have information about, these four, these four guys, you know, they were doing a little more than waiting tables. They were really ministering in powerful ways uh, in the church. And, and, and the result is... If you see at the end of this whole situation that everyone was pleased with, because it's a really reasonable solution, uh, the result was, according to Luke, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Um, if you think about, it said that in, 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 uh, after Pentecost in Acts 2, when it's talking about how the church was working, the big thing was everyone was in unity. They were selling stuff to help other people pay uh, uh, or help other people uh, with, with their needs. No one, there was not a poor person among them. Uh, all these kinds of things. That was all threatened in this moment in the history of the church. But because the Spirit so filled these people with wisdom and guidance and love, and they were not fearful, and they were not clinging to power so tightly, God did this amazing thing, and the result was the Word of God spread. And I, th- I think, uh, and, and Luke is fond of saying, that's kind of how Luke bookends something that happened that was good in the, in the book of Acts. You'll read a story, then it'll talk about numbers, in a sense. Uh, and, and he says the word of God spread. 
The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The final piece is the most interesting uh, after, after reading, because, uh, and this, this might seem a little bit backwards to you, but God, remember I told you people are people, and God is God, and God leads people like a shepherd? And the work of God in someone's life is going to come forward eventually. But God knows he can't dump everything on you at once. He, he leads you along gently like a shepherd, right? And God was leading these people who were very separated ethnically uh, like, a, like a shepherd. And these priests, you understand, these are people that are like Hebrew, work in, work in synagogues, they're, they're local guys. It's very threatening to them to see this church that has like non-Jews who became Jews, Hellenized Jews, you know, and Hebrew Jews all mixed together. They're like, I don't know about this. I don't know if I can get behind it. Because they, they were kind of like in this certain mindset. They weren't, they weren't quite getting what God was doing in history where he was drawing all nations to himself. He was beginning this thing, going from one culture to many cultures. Uh, they, they didn't quite get it. But you know what made them comfortable enough to come to church? The fact, honestly, that there, were, there, were, that there was some separation, demarcation in leadership. That, like, that there was kind of this sense of, there's a Hebrew church, there, there, there's a, a, um, a Hellenized church, and, and I can go and, and be with these people that I know and come to understand and God can pull me along, you know? That seems kind of backwards to us, but I think this provides an opportunity for priests to come to God more easily and then to, be, to get this vision from Jesus that all nations are coming to God. And of course, the most... We're going to see this in Acts, so we're going to refer back to this. The Samaritans come to Christ through Philip. And then the Gentiles, you know, there's a, an amazing story where God says, it's time to bring in everybody. And so God is just leading his people like a shepherd. And he provides this, this demarcation in leadership. And, he, and, the, and the priests are like, you know what? I can do that. It's not so crazy. And, and that just is what they needed. And God drew them in. And people just came to Christ. So I just think, when I look at this story, um, how amazing it is that the Holy Spirit so filled this community. The fear of, of, of empowering other people and not controlling everything was not there. And the humility to hear about a problem that they didn't personally understand uh, was, was there. The, the, the humility to listen to people that were different from them was there. And, uh, and, uh, and there was a solution where, where people were empowered to be the church and for, for God to, to, to fulfill his vision or go further in fulfilling his vision that all nations would come to Jesus. And we are, the, most of us, the heritage of this amazing decision. Uh, and it all started with the Holy Spirit removing fear from people's hearts. Truly, uh, this, this fear that makes people what they are is present in everyone uh, in many different situations. But I, I firmly believe that the opposite of fear is the filling of the Spirit. When God so fills us with his love through his Spirit who he's given us, it just obliterates the fear in our hearts. So I don't know, I don't know what fears... Uh, people come in particularly this morning with. Uh, but as the worship team comes forward, I thought a great response to this message uh, would be for us to take our fears, talk about them with God, and ask the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh that we might not be slaves of fear. Because it says in Romans 8, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. 
The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we're also heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might share in his glory. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is the opposite of fear, and it can be so empowering uh, to take those things that really, that really cause us to, to freak out, our health, our relationships, um, and maybe even some of, the, some of the fears that are in this passage uh, that are potentially, potentially there with other races and different things in the world and things on the news. Uh, God wants to take away our fear and help us to have a sound mind, self-discipline, uh, and love. And then everything that we do is going to, if we have that fear obliterated from our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's going to change everything about us, the way we talk, the way we interact, the way we think, um, the way we hear things and process information, the way we relate to some of the most important human relationships in our life. Uh, Having that fear be dealt with by Jesus through the Spirit is truly probably one of the greatest gifts we can have. So if you'd like to pray to God about uh, specific fears that you might have, I say come forward and have some time with God uh, up here in the front and just turn it over to him and ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. It says, uh, which of you fathers, if, if your son is thirsty, will give him will um, give him a rock instead of water or give him a scorpion instead of bread if he's hungry? Of course, um, even, a, even a bad father would give his child uh, food and water if need be. And then the, the statement is, how much more your good heavenly father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So I, I say, ask, seek, knock, be filled with the Spirit. It was not with money or perishable things you were bought, but with the precious blood of Jesus. And God is good. Uh, keep seeking him that we might be a people who are characterized by wisdom, by being full of the Spirit, by understanding, and not people of fear. I bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to live lives of peace, knowing that in Christ you are safe. In Christ uh, you have wisdom and all the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.